0: uh really quickly cuz i know i got to move on to other news but you know we do have the super bowl we'll be coming up soon and i've been thinking about what are some recipes that i could send out and y'all know i started thinking one of the recipes i make a ton of for sitting on the front porch lately is a uh, street uh, chicken tacos, grilled chicken tacos. And I, I think I have mastered the grilled chicken taco. And that recipe goes out tomorrow in the noontime hour. It's already locked and loaded to go out. If you want to subscribe to the recipe list, just type the word, send the word recipe to 33777. You just text it. Uh, open your text messaging app. The phone number is 33777. And then you just send one word, recipe. And you will get a link back wherein you can subscribe uh, to the recipe list. I got some great ones going out over the next couple of months. Now, I want to go back to something I wanted to talk about in the first hour of the program. We got some problems. Uh, okay, so I, I got to separate this out. Um, How do I do this? Um, I, I want to actually just give you some... Well, for lack of a better word, analysis here, and I I need to caveat this, particularly if you're a listener on the left. I am a student of politics. I like politics. I got a a degree in political science and history. I got a a double major, poli science and history. Got a minor in English that, of course, was the law school tract. I went to law school not to be a lawyer, but to get into politics. I was working for a congressman at the time who told me uh, law degree was like the MBA of politics. It opened doors in Washington. I actually wound up becoming a lawyer. Then I helped start redstate.com. I ran congressional races. I was a lawyer for President Bush. I ran uh, local races. I ran statewide races. I was a political consultant, a political strategist, a campaign manager, a grassroots coordinator. I love politics. I just I love politics. One of the reasons I love politics is because I grew up in Dubai, and uh, there really weren't a lot of ways to connect home. We had, like, camel racing and cricket. Woohoo! We got soccer. We eventually got a grass uh, field at our school that was used for, like, little league football teams. But really, uh, I connected to the news. I was a bit of—I mean, I always have been a bit of a nerd— loved the news, and got to love politics and really embraced it. And it was a way for me as a kid growing up in Dubai in the Middle East to connect to the United States. It's politics. So regardless of my partisan views or my ideological views, I can look at a political situation and assess. I get people mad at me all the time because you, you get these candidates who are nobody candidates who you can just tell that at your gut level this candidate is not going anywhere. This candidate will never get elected to anything, and yet the person runs for office. And then they get uh, mad as hell at me because I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not putting you on my radio show to expose my audience to you because some of them might write you a check and you're not going to win. And I would prefer them to look at potentially viable candidates. I can tell you don't have what it takes to win. People get mad at me. They say that's snotty. I'm sorry, I've done this since I was a kid. I get politics. I understand how to win races. I understand how to run for office. And I understand the fundamental warning signs that things are not all right in campaigns and in political offices. And I say all of that so that you understand this is not partisan, Republican, former elected official, conservative, red state writer, Eric Erickson. This is student of politics, Eric Erickson, saying what I'm about to say. At a partisan level, you can look at the polling and tell that Joe Biden has problems, but there are warning signs coming from within the White House that show this is a White House that is not functioning well. And at this point, it is very clear the problems come from Ron Klain, the chief of staff. Why do I say that? There are three stories out. The first story is Dick Durbin, Senator from Illinois, the number two Senate Democrat, says it was Ron Klain who leaked that Stephen Breyer was retiring, but he only did so to a select group of people. But Breyer, the leak about Breyer retiring got out. So I'm sure Ron Klain didn't tell any reporters, but he told someone who told Pete Williams at NBC News. And so it goes back to Ron Klain, and you've got Dick Durbin essentially throwing Ron Klain under the bus, albeit politely. You also have Joe Manchin, who blames Ron Klain for all the collapse of Build Back Better and and all of that. There's another story out. The White House is upset with Jamie Harrison. Harrison is the, is that right? Yeah, Jamie Harrison. He is the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. There's a story. NBC News broke the story. NBC News appears to be a preferred leaker for the White House. Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison is frustrated, isolated, and trapped in a job he long thought he wanted, according to party insiders, a dynamic driven by escalating tensions with the White House over his role. Key decisions for the committee are made by White House Deputy Chief of Staff Jim O'Malley Dillon, who speaks frequently with other DNC officials, but only about three times a month by Zoom with Harrison. The limits of his influence are a source of agitation for Harrison, according to several people who have spoken to him. At the same time, he's not flying to meet with donors or visiting DNC headquarters. Instead, since he first took the post a year ago, Harrison has mostly stayed in his home state of South Carolina, according to people familiar with his schedule, as well as people who frequently see him around town. This has been a major point of consternation for the White House, and neither the White House nor Harrison has come up with a cohesive strategy to help President Joe Biden rebound from abysmal approval ratings. For Democrats, the tension demonstrates a troubling reality. Already bracing for a potential midterm bloodbath as the president's approval rating continues to plummet, there's dysfunction at the top of the largest and most significant institution of the Democratic Party. The White House set up this story to blame Jamie Harrison. Now, you need to understand who Jamie Harrison is because it's important. I've got a lot of friends from South Carolina who are Republicans, who are highly involved in the Republican Party, and they all genuinely at a personal level like this guy. All of them, all of my Republican friends in South Carolina say he's a good dude, family man, good head on his shoulders, good Christian, but he's in over his head here. And why? Why? because Jamie Harrison ran a campaign for senator in South Carolina and raised tens of millions of dollars to lose to Lindsey Graham. But for a time, he and the Democrats thought he could get it close. Even some Republicans for a time thought he could get it close. I remember about a month before the election, Some panicked Republicans thinking Lindsey Graham could lose to a Democrat in South Carolina. The polling's terrible. Well, we now know how accurate the polling was. I never thought Lindsey was going to lose. But a lot of people wondered. And a lot of people poured money into Harrison's campaign. And the result is that that money did not go to other close races. And Harrison, the race was not close. Harrison got trounced by Graham, and the money spent on Harrison could have gone elsewhere, but Harrison became a symbol. They forgot how badly he did. And instead, Harrison and others were able to spin it and say, hey, you got to win in states like South Carolina to take the Democrats back into real power. You need people like me. And so they put him in charge of the DNC. But... You should know that uh, when a president is an incumbent inside the White House, really, it's the White House that rules the roost. Uh, that's why George W. Bush put Ken Melman in charge of the White House or in charge of the RNC for a while because Melman was a trusted operator from Bushland. And he and Carl Rove had collaborated together on the campaign. Uh, Joe Biden didn't do that, and it was stupid. Joe Biden should have put someone in charge, but he couldn't because the Democrats wanted a black person in charge of the DNC, and Joe Biden didn't have any black person on staff who was competent, so they gave it to Harrison. And he was always supposed to be a figurehead. Everything was going to be run out of the White House, but Harrison would be there to raise money and explain to people that the Democrats could be competitive in states like South Carolina. Just look at him. But now, Ron Klain needs to blame someone. So he's throwing Harrison under the bus, throw the black man under the bus. clay has got to save himself. And so Jamie Harrison, is suddenly, who was the symbol of the competitiveness of, of Democrats of the South, is now the scapegoat. And then there's Becerra the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Becerra had been uh, the, um, oh, he had been in California. He uh, was the Attorney General. That's right. He was the Attorney General in California, replaced Kamala Harris. And then they sent him up to, he was a member of Congress he, when Kamala Harris ran for the Senate, he ran for her spot. And now he's the Secretary of Health and Human Services. What you need to understand about Xavier Becerra is that the only reason, and I'm not making this up, this is not partisanship, this is the truth. The only reason Xavier Becerra was put into that position is because he is a major proponent of killing babies. He loves him some abortion, and Becerra aggressively prosecuted pro-lifers in California and tried to change the law to benefit Planned Parenthood, and Planned Parenthood put all of their muscle into getting Becerra in as Secretary of Health and Human Services to undo all of the things Donald Trump had done against Planned Parenthood and abortion. That's the only reason he was named Secretary of Health and Human Services. And now the Biden administration needs a scapegoat on COVID. So reports are leaking out that Becerra is not a very good manager. He's not very good at dealing with the COVID task force. He's very aloof. He doesn't ask questions. It's his fault. His fault. Not Ron Clay, not the White House. The White House needs a scapegoat. It's not good for the White House. That Becerra is there. This is the White House headline, Washington Post. The White House frustrations grow over health chief Becerra's handling a pandemic. White House officials have grown so frustrated with top health official Xavier Becerra as the pandemic rages on that they've openly mused about who might be better at the job. Although political considerations have stopped them from taking steps to replace him, officials involved in the discussion said. Top White House officials have had an uneasy relationship with Becerra, the Health and Human Services Secretary, ever since early in President Biden's term. But their dissatisfaction has escalated in recent months as the Omicron variant has sickened millions of Americans in a fifth pandemic wave amid confusing and sometimes conflicting messages from top health care officials. They're throwing Becerra under the bus now. They've got to. Because Ron Klein wants to keep his job. And then there's a third story. Harris to Supreme Court chatter opens window into Dim's deepest fears. The vice president isn't going to be nominated to the High Court, but some Dims can't stop talking about it. Why? Because she's a disaster as vice president. Some of the Democrats who raised the possibility of Harris to the Supreme Court, including somebody Owen here, uh, William Owen, said they did so in admiration for Harris's background as a prosecutor and senator, particularly her sharp question of Brett Kavanaugh. But most of them expressed a different consideration, reflecting the intense skepticism within some parts of the party about Harris's ability to win a presidential race if Biden doesn't run for reelection a desire to open the field to other possible successors to a 79-year-old president. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care how partisan you are. These stories reflect a deep dysfunction in the White House. It is the White House who blessed Kamala Harris as vice president. It is the White House who blessed Jamie Harrison as DNC chair. And it is the White House who blessed Xavier Becerra as Secretary of Health and Human Services. And it is the White House Chief of Staff that leaked the Stephen Breyer retirement sooner than Breyer wanted. And it is the White House Chief of Staff who angered Joe Manchin. The White House is in disarray. Ron Klain is clearly responsible for it. And he is desperate to find scapegoats before the election to prolong his job. It doesn't matter what your partisanship is or what your politics is. These stories should be ringing alarm bells for everyone that this is a White House that is in disarray. The chief of staff knows it, and he's doing everything he can to protect his job instead of dealing with the problems, some of which are caused by him. I want to cut corners and just get to the chase. A lot of you hear podcast ads and radio ads for Bull and Branch, and you're thinking, eh, they're just telling you it because they're getting paid. I'm actually telling you it because I'm a customer. We actually have Bull and Branch sheets. And yes, they are an ad. Yes, this is an ad, but yes. I really am a customer. I only like to do ads for companies that I really like, and I love Bull and Branch. So does my wife. My wife actually heard the ads, and she wanted to try the sheets, and now they are the sheets in our house. Bull and Branch does not qu- cut corners. They make super soft, wonderful sheets. They use the softest organic cotton they can find. They get better with every wash. They soften and soften and soften, and they only use 100% sustainable raw materials. They're the first fair trade certified manufacturer of linen. You can feel it as good about your Bowling Branch sheets as they feel against your skin. They are so soft. They don't get too hot. They don't get too cold. They're just great. And every wash improves them. That, I'm telling you, is one of the coolest things about these sheets. It's like sleeping on a new bed every time you wash the sheets. It's great. Now, you can experience the best sheets you've ever felt at BowlingBranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code ERIC at checkout. That's Branch. B O L L A N D branch dot com promo code Eric E R I C K. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number eight seven seven nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. To the phones, I go. Scott, been waiting very patiently. Scott, welcome to the program. How are you? Hey Eric, how are you? I'm good. What's going on? Hey, really, uh, real quick, help me understand something with yesterday with the Ahmad Arbery case. So, obviously they were convicted in the state court. This is the federal hate crimes trial. The prosecutor offers a plea deal. They take it, apparently, and then the judge comes back and says, "Uh oh, no, no, no! Tap the brakes on that. We're going to pull that back." Well, they've already they've already agreed to a guilty plea. So how? How does that work? Okay, yeah. So, great question here. Um, And so, the Justice Department uh, talked to Ahmed Arbery's family. So, and for people to reset, yes, they were found guilty, but in state court, it's not double jeopardy to also be charged in federal court with crimes. Uh, And so, they're being charged in federal court with, among other things, hate crimes. The Justice Department negotiated with Ahmed Arbery's family. They were okay with the plea deal, but by the time it got before the judge, the family had had a change of heart, and they pleaded to the judge to reject the plea deal. Now, in federal court, the federal judge is not honor-bound to take a plea deal. The judge can reject it. Uh, In that case, uh, what the judge said is they recommended 30 years in federal prison, and it would have trumped the state-level prison sanctions. And that's one of the reasons the judge was concerned, is that uh, there are a lot of people who believe, particularly if charged in the southeast in federal court, uh, you're going to go to federal prison, but it's not going to be anything like what a state prison would be. And that was one of the concerns the and Arbery family raised at trial, is they want real punishment, not a cushy sentence in a federal prison that, based on federal sentencing guidelines, could then get them out of federal prison Soon. So the judges decided they're going to have to stand trial or if they want to continue to plead guilty, let her decide for herself what sentence should be. The odds are she's not going to take it. It's kind of a complicated deal here because you got to remember they were they were found guilty in a state court. But it's not double jeopardy because you, we live under two systems law, state level and a federal level. And the state and federal level can both charge you with the same crime. You can have two trials and be found guilty in both places. And it's not double jeopardy. Double jeopardy only applies to, like, the feds charging you multiple times with the same thing. Uh, but this is in the judge's discretion. And after Ahmed Arbery's family begged her not to take the deal, she decided not to take the deal. And they will have to decide, do you want to plead guilty and let me sentence you? Or do you want to plead not guilty and let a jury deal with it? I suspect they may stay with the judge. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to call in, 877 877- 97 Eric 877-973-7425. Seven, seven, nine, seven, seven, now, well, what else do we have going on? Lots and lots and lots going on. Um, I, I want to go back again. I've played this audio now twice. I want to do it a third time. You'll have to forgive me because it, it has related to so many topics today. This is Brian Stelter again on CNN. You hear Joe Rogan first and then Stelter. The narrative is, I want to show all kinds of opinions. Which sounds great, but not all opinions are created equal. You think about major newsrooms like CNN that have health departments and deaths and operations that work hard on verifying information on COVID-19. And then you have talk show stars like Joe Rogan who just wing it, who make it up as they go along. There's a level of arrogance in what he said. They just wing it. They make it up as they go along. You know, I speak for three hours every weekday without a script with just a few notes, some articles I want to cover. And I take the time to educate myself. And I take the time to Reach out to epidemiologists and virologists and and infectious disease specialists if I'm talking about COVID to try to understand what I'm talking about because my primary job beyond keeping you guys entertained is to take a topic that's in the news and make it digestible for you, particularly if it's very complicated. And so that raises the question for for someone like Stelter of who are you relying on? We have editorial boards and health departments and we can – well, what if they have biases? And we've seen this at CNN. Early on in the Trump administration, James Comey was going to testify before Congress, and CNN did a breathtaking report that he was essentially going to throw the Trump administration under the bus and say they were the ones who did something. And I forget the exact details at the time, but the story was wrong, and CNN ran with it and had to apologize. And they made a big deal about the credibility of the people who were doing the story, including one who was a brand new hire at CNN, had been an investigative reporter, and they came over and they got the story wrong. Then there was the Chris Cuomo situation with Andrew Cuomo, where he was propping up his brother. Members of the media were fawning over the interviews. It was so humanizing. It was so refreshing. There were people who called themselves, uh, they were Cuomo fans against Donald Trump. And they, they loved Cuomo. And CNN didn't ask the tough questions when everybody else was talking about them. CNN wasn't asking the tough questions. And it turns out that Chris was complicit in covering things up with Andrew Cuomo. And it turns out that even after CNN told him to stop, Chris Cuomo was still helping his brother. And even that wasn't enough to fire him. It had to be the sexual harassment allegations out of ABC News as well that got him tossed. They were willing to just suspending. Brian Stelter himself had someone go on and speculate about Donald Trump's mental health and compared him to the Nazis. Brian Stelter's own social media team tweeted out that clip. And when he was called out for it, he said, well, my, my IFB, my earpiece had malfunctioned and I didn't hear him say that, but his social media team tweeted it out. And then he was like, well, you know, that's not really how it operates. I don't oversee those clips. Someone else does. I didn't. I don't even have approval. I've been in a situation at CNN where my IFB cut out on me at an inopportune moment, and I got blasted by my own side, no less, for not defending Mitt Romney's wife in the day. I was on television with Hillary Rosen, and she made some statement about Ann uh, Romney not working outside the house. It kind of disparaged her for being a stay-at-home mom, or that's how it was taken – uh, she really didn't mean it that way, uh, but it was taken that way, and I understood how, and I didn't respond to it or even give her the opportunity to clarify because my IFB had cut out on me. That's little earpiece you put in to hear the audio. So I understood that. But it just seemed highly coincidental that they pushed this clip out. No one else on the team seems to think a big deal about this guy comparing Donald Trump to the Nazis and and uh, extrapolating mental health issues. And still, oh well, I mean, I, I I engaged in the conversation, but didn't hear a word he said. And it's not just them. The New York Times staff. Got butthurt by Tom Cotton, sitting senator in the United States, writing an op-ed, suggesting the National Guard be deployed to stamp out the rioting that's happening in the country. Now, they want the National Guard deployed in this country to go after the COVID truthers, but they didn't want them going after the Black Lives Matter rioters who were burning down America. The New York Times employees got upset that a sitting senator of the United States was given access to the newspaper to share his views. They couldn't handle it. ABC News has George Stephanopoulos, who was going to be put up for a presidential debate, but he gave money to the Clinton Foundation. George Stephanopoulos worked for Bill Clinton. gets... Prime seating at ABC News. More Americans get their news from ABC News than from any other news source. But Dana Perino at Fox, my gosh, how dare they put someone who was a press secretary for George W. Bush there. Brian Williams was the anchor at NBC's Nightly News. Made up a story about himself. Got himself moved over to MSNBC where he's been a reliable liberal. The problem here is Brian Stelter doesn't seem to understand why people want to listen to Josh, to Joe Rogan and not CNN. Look at us. Look at us. We have all of these, all of these tools. We we have all of these all of these research facilities. We have all of the editors. We fact check. We reference. the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these works appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. I love that sonnet. The picture there is of Ozymandias, the king of kings, who demands you look on his work, she mighty, in despair. And it's a ruin. It's a ruin, half stuck out of the sand. The Sphinx, buried in the sand. And you know, at the time, for a time, the Sphinx was buried, and, and they, the archaeologists, archeolog- slowly dug it out from under the sand. But there for a while, a long time ago, hundreds of years ago, it was just the head of the Sphinx sticking out of the sand. It's what the American media is becoming. Look on my editorial boards. Look on my health department in despair. Look on my reporting and research facilities. Look on my ratings. Look on my graphics package. Look at the bios of my anchors and despair. And the ratings are down. Viewership is down. Distrust of the media is down. Nobody trusts them. They're collapsing. And it's not just CNN, the New York Times during the Trump era. They were rushing out all of their stats on all their new subscribers. People were rushing to the New York Times. And the result is that the New York Times became captured by its audience. The New York Times couldn't run Tom Cotton because it would perturb the progressives who subscribed to the New York Times. So they couldn't run the news and the truth if the truth and the news upset the left. And after Trump... Ratings have declined. Ratings at Politico, they've declined. Every day it's nonstop coverage of Donald Trump and what Donald Trump said to try to bring people back. Institutionally, trust in the news has collapsed. And because trust in the news has collapsed, the institutions themselves are collapsing. And so they turn to fact checkers who wish to fact-check. And you know what a fact-checker is? A fact-checker is a progressive reporter who failed at being a good reporter. And so now must be assigned the fact-checking room to do combat with conservatives and twist the truth to try to make it sound progressive. So they can claim truth is on our side. We have a legion of fact-checkers. I remember... The Rise of Blogs. I was a blogger. You know who I give credit to for getting me into blogging? And I don't know that he knows that I give him credit. But Jonah Goldberg, he's at the dispatch now, he used to be at at, uh, at National Review. When I was younger, when I was a board lawyer, would be reading the National Review and stuff, I would write these emails to Jonah Goldberg, kind of like some people write me now. And one day he replied, he says, you know, there's this thing called a blog. You can get one for free off Blogspot. You should go do that. And I did. Started one. Got noticed by a group. Pulled me into Red State. It was the first right-wing community blog. And the New York Times wrote about us and others and said, you know, these bloggers, they don't have editors to edit them. They could get things wrong and who would know? The difference between the blogs and the newspapers is that the newspapers, a week later, would put a um, put a correction on the back page of the paper and say, "Correction, we got this thing wrong a while back." Me and my posts, I could go through and strike lines and say, "I got this wrong right here in the article," and I could be more accurate. And it drove them crazy that they had competitors from bloggers. Remember uh, the Powerline guys. The Powerline guys, when Dan Rather got hoodwinked about the Bush National Guard stuff, were able to show that the font that was used in the memo did not exist in the 1970s when the memo was purported to be written. Dan Rather lost his job over it. But he still refuses to admit it. I I, people forget these sorts of things, and you shouldn't really forget these sorts of things. But the New York Times and CNN and and the rest—they have an institutional bias against anyone other than media institutions. They don't believe anyone else can do as well as them, and they're getting their clocks cleaned. By the Joe Rogans of the world because you put your trust in that individual and you know he's not always going to get it right, but he's not going to try to willfully advance a narrative that misleads me to advance some cause I don't agree with. And so many people have lost their trust in the national media because the national media is so embedded within the bubble of the Democratic Party and and anything that doesn't fit that narrative, anything that disrupts that narrative – has to be excluded from the story. And when you keep excluding facts from stories to uphold a narrative, at some point the whole narrative itself collapses and your credibility along with it. And thus, the credibility of these news organizations is left to men like Brian Stelter to look on the camera and say, we have editorialists and health departments to make sure we get it right. And Joe Rogan has only himself, and they don't understand why would people prefer one man over an army of fact-checkers. Now, I wanna tell you about Patriot Mobile a company that is putting points on the board for the conservative movement as they push back against the fake narratives of the press. Patriot Mobile gives a portion of its profits to the conservative movement to fight in advance for truth and freedom in the American way. They, in fact, give money to the pro-life cause, the Second Amendment cause, and others. And how do they do it? Well, they get you as a customer, and then they give a portion of their profits to fight for the right. So you should you can transfer your phone number over. You can get a new number for them. If you have an unlocked phone, you can use it. And they use the same cell towers everybody else uses. So whether you're with with... with AT&T or Verizon or any other cell phone company right now, you can switch to Patriot Mobile and know you're still going to get incredible service. What you do is you go to PatriotMobile.com slash Eric and you'll get free activation. PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. You can also call them. They have 100% U.S.-based customer service. You can call them 972-PATRIOT. Tell them Eric sent you. And don't forget to tell them you're an NRA member or a teacher or a veteran or first responder or you need a lot of lines for your house. They'll give you great discounts. They're a good company of great people, and they fight for the right. They share your values. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. You can't call in now because there's just no time. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So in California, they have fully implemented critical race theory. And in Los Angeles, they have dropped health classes to require students go to the class on race and race relations, where the Hispanic kids are essentially told that they are oppressed. It turns out that the Hispanic kids hate it, and now they're having a problem. One, uh, the Hispanic kids in class are pushing back, and two— A lot of them are skipping the classes. They don't want to go, Um, which is an, an interesting development for this effort where the Hispanic kids, and by the way, it's not just the Hispanic kids. The black kids, the white kids, the Asian kids also realize there's a problem. Uh, and uh, they don't understand what they're going to do about it. They don't understand how to get these kids to recognize that they're oppressed. Um, I find it funny that even the kids recognize the BS. And I suspect where we're headed is a more agitated push against the kids themselves. I mean, we're seeing this in schools around the country with the vaccine and and the masks. At some point, the kids become the problem. At some point, the kids are the ones who have to be dealt with. It's not just the parents. I just think that maybe the left... Is going to lose this cultural fight. The data shows parents, even on the left, have turned against critical theory. The data on the left actually shows overwhelmingly that uh, parents in this country are siding with conservatives on the issue of critical race theory. You know, where I live in Atlanta, the Gwinnett County has decided to embrace. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which is how they've changed the name for critical race theory. So now Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and and they've hired this woman who has a TikTok who's just nuts. I mean, my goodness, some of the stuff she's put on her TikTok, I should have gotten the audio for you. Uh, But the school boards won't abandon it, and so the parents are revolting against the school boards and tossing people out. The left just doesn't understand what's coming. It's 2022 and guess what? Nothing still makes sense. The whole world seems to be going crazy right now and banks have gotten really skittish at helping small businesses. They're perfectly happy to help the giant businesses. But what about you? You're a small business. You got to buy a building or build a building or you need a big loan for a fleet of vehicles to grow your business and the banks are giving you a hard time. Check out my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. They can help you nationwide wherever you are. If you're a small business and you need access to loans, let's say 500,000 and up, First Liberty can do it. They've been doing this since the early 90s. The Frost family are friends of mine. They're committed Christians, and they're great business people, and they are committed to small businesses. Reach out to them. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. FirstLibertyGA.com. Spend 10 minutes with them. See if they're a good fit for you. See if you're a good fit for them. They want to help you get to yes, where the big banks are saying no. Nationwide, they can help you if you're a small business. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website. FirstLibertyGA.com.